from ABC. This is the 10% Happier Podcast. I'm Dan Harris. Today, we have a masterclass in resilience. My guest is George Mumford, who has overcome some towering difficulties in his own life, including an addiction to drugs. He went on to become a legendary meditation teacher who's worked with athletes such as Michael Jordan and Kobe Bryant. In this episode, we talk about how we can all develop the skill of resilience through meditation. Just like the Buddha did, George loves to teach using lists. You'll hear him discuss the three C's, the four A's, and the five superpowers. You'll also hear him talk about how he has had to apply these skills afresh in the past few months in his own life, during which he's experienced death in his family as well as the death of his friend Kobe Bryant. As you may have heard me mention in Monday's episode, we're dedicating this whole week to the interrelated themes of resilience and grit. If you missed it, go check out Monday's episode with psychologist Angela Duckworth, who wrote a whole book on grit. One last note before we dive in here, George has a fantastic course on the 10% Happier app, all about learning how to face high pressure situations such as the one we are in right now. So we'll include a link to that in the show notes. In the meantime, here we go with my friend, George Mumford. George, it's nice to see you. Um, Good to see you too. We were just chatting that the last time we saw each other was over Indian food and right before the world fell apart in the winter. Uh, so I'm, I'm curious, I want to ask you a question I've been asking a lot of people recently, but I don't mean it in a perfunctory way. I mean it in a real way. I, I want to hear the answer, which is, how are you? So much has happened since I last saw you, um, including the pandemic and, of course, the all of the tumult following uh, the killing of George Floyd. So I just want to check in and get a sense of how you are. I'm really good, actually. Uh, I'm I'm feeling great, and I say that uh, uh, in spite of everything that's going on, uh, I feel really, really, really great, and I am able, as I like to say, hold the hurt and generate the hope. So I'm able to feel things. So a few things have happened since the last time I saw you. Uh, I, I think it was after Kobe Bryant had died. So I had, uh, that was like I say the last Sunday in January. And then the next week, one of my high school friends passed away. And then the week after that, my sister passed away. So I've been dealing with a lot of that even before the COVID uh, thing hit. But one of the things that I noticed, and I was very hesitant to share with people was that even though those things happened, there was, uh, I was experiencing peace that really didn't get touched by those things. And see, and I, and you know, and I had done, I mean, just a little self-disclosure. I knew when my mother passed away, it would be very challenging because when I was living at the Cambridge Insight Meditation Center in 89, I lived there for six years, uh, it was November 22nd, 1989. I started dealing with uh, what they call a death awareness meditation practice, where you start to reflect on the fact that, that we're all going to die. Uh, we don't get beyond death and that sort of thing, because I knew when my mother passed, it was going to be really challenging. And she didn't pass until 2001. So I had a little time uh, to work on that, like 12 years. And I think that I continue to work on that. And I think it manifested in 2020 
uh, where I, I can see the fruits of the practice. So a lot of times you do these practices, uh, you, you develop these ways of being, and you're not really sure, or I'm not really sure how it's going to hold up when, when the crap hits the fan. So you said a lot there. I, uh, I just want to point one thing out and then, then follow up on a couple things you said. A lot of people were upset when Kobe Bryant passed away in the helicopter crash. The vast majority of those people were simply fans. You actually knew him and taught him how to meditate. So it, it was a different, I just want to highlight that that was personal for you, not just something that happened as a fan. Yes, yes, it was very personal uh, for me because we were really close. And, you know, I get to work with him or I work with the Lakers. But also I've had, you know, just be, when I was writing my book, uh, he had called me and he asked me to come out there to Newport Beach where he lived and hang out for a couple of days because he wanted to start working. He was still, it was in this next to last season in the, in the league, but he was about ready to retire. So I got out there and I got to hang out with him a little bit and talk about things and to be interacting with him in his own space where he didn't have bodyguards and there wasn't a crowd. It was just he and I and the people he worked with. But on that and on that trip, he was still working with the Lakers. So he asked me. So I actually got in a helicopter with him and took the helicopter to L.A. because he had a game. So we were really close. And when he when I heard about his death, I was actually at the University of Richmond watching a women's basketball game when I got the text. And I just felt like, oh, this is a bad joke. You know, this, this ain't right. And and so that's how I found out about it. And it was it was pretty devastating. And at the same time, I, I feel like I could continue to do what I needed to do and create space for that hurt and to generate the hope. And the first thing I said was, I hope his family's not with him. And then I found out his daughter and seven other souls were in a helicopter. You've now used this phrase a couple of times, and it was on my mind to, to kind of dig in with you on it, hurt and hope, because just to when I asked you how you were, you said you were doing great, notwithstanding a litany of unfortunate events, including mm -hmm. Kobe, your sister, COVID, all the racial uh, unrest in the country, right. and we could go on. Mm -hmm. So in describing how you managed to feel great in the face of all this, you, you talked about holding hurt and cultivating hope, I believe was the phrase. Yeah. Uh, so can generating. you say generating hope? Can you say a, a lot more about that? Yes. So when I think about, so how I related to Kobe's death was obviously there was devastation and felt sad and everything. And then when I started, I get to interpret what it means, Right. I get interpreted, so I, I choose to interpret things in a way that empower me, that inspire me. And so when I look at the fact that, you know, knowing him, if he was on the helicopter and his daughter died and he didn't, he'd be devastated. And if he died and she didn't, they'd be devastated. They went together and they went with their friends, people they were close to. And I find that in his death, He's having such a tremendous positive impact on, on the world that I'm not so sure if he lived 100 years, he would be able to have the same impact. So I tend to look at things 
from that perspective. And of course, his wife and his family and all of us, I'm going to miss him. I mean, one of the things that I was planning on doing, and then, and it's like when you wait too long was, and I had talked to Ashley and uh, the year before during the All-Star break, uh, I got interviewed for my college roommate, uh, Dr. J, Julius Irving, and I was talking to him and I said, you know, I have this idea that I'd like to, to have a conversation with you, Kobe, and MJ. The four of us just sitting down and having a conversation. And he said, well, let's do it. He was ready to do it on All-Star weekend, but it wasn't appropriate because I hadn't really talked to anybody and I wasn't prepared for it. But that was one of the things that I was looking forward to. And of course, if, if we're able to do that, Kobe won't be able to be there. So that kind of reminds me of the the idea that there's no guarantee. You know, we just have today. We just have this moment. And the impermanence. I feel like the COVID and all of these things are amplifying or putting everything on steroids. But people are dying all the time. Racial injustice has been going on forever. I mean, I, it's not new to me. I've had this experience all my life. So, and it doesn't mean that I get hardened to it and I don't get upset about it. It just means that things are impermanent. You know, we have this illusion of separateness, which prevents us from seeing the the humanity, the soul of the other person, and that suffering happens. You know, you get old, you die, you get sick. I mean, it happens. It's just what life is. And and the challenge is how can we say yes to that and at the same time generate the hope to go on and to be as present, be as loving, be as compassionate as I can to myself and others. So for me, it's like this is an opportunity to really express that kindness, that compassion, that love of life and getting beyond the illusion of separateness when we're able to see that I and other are one. Right, on the simplest, simplest possible level, it's a profound making of lemonade out of lemons. Yes, and and making it, you know, this this book that I love to read. I read it over and over. It's called The Way of Man by Martin Buber. And in that book, he talks about the idea that, that we can do what no angel can do. And what that is, is we can hallow things or we can make things holy. So it doesn't matter what we do. It's the intention as to how much love, how much holiness, how much compassion or love we can bring to it that can be transformative for ourselves and for others. So it doesn't matter what the situation is. Can we show up and be loving, be compassionate, be kind, be joyful? And be equanimous. In other words, just all experiences are of equal value. Can we show up for everything? The good, the bad, the ugly, or what's pleasant, what's unpleasant, what's boring. Can we just bring that zest for life, that joy for being alive to everything? You talked about illusion of separateness. And this is one of these, this idea of interconnectedness or being one with the universe, it very quickly devolves into a cliche here. But there's a reason cliches become cliches, because they're true. I have wrestled with this one, not the cliche aspect of it. I've wrestled with it from, like, actually understanding 
the illusion of separateness on a molecular level myself. But the way you phrased it, I had a minute there of actually getting it. You weren't saying that I'm magically, you know, subatomically, although I probably am, connected to you or anybody else. But what you were saying there is if we look at our I, what I heard, at least, mm-hmm. and you'll tell me if I was wrong, if we look at our own inner mess, our own... I often use the phrase sort of dumpster fire of um, sadness, hurt, greed, whatever patterns we have, and we get comfortable and cool enough with that, then we inexorably start to see that everybody else has got their own dumpster fire. And that's one way, at least, Mm -hmm. again, you'll tell me if I'm saying this correctly, to get over this illusion that we are these atomized, separate egos looking out at the world behind fretful eye sockets. Uh, but in fact, we actually have this massive amount in common. Yes, and it's soul of soul, if you will. Masterpiece of masterpiece, what I talk about. Uh, just like me, everybody wants to be happy. I don't think people do things to hurt themselves. Uh, I think because of ignorance, because of craving, we know what the, the causes of suffering are. But every once in a while, we get beyond that illusion of separateness. So you're in New York, so 9-11, you have people running into a building. You have people, you see it every once in a while, we get beyond the illusion of separateness. We're not going in there saying, oh, that's a Democrat, that's a Republican, that's a Buddhist, that's a, a Jewish person, uh, that's a male, that's a female. Uh, they live in my hood, they don't live in my hood. It's none of that. It's just the movement of the heart that just wants to We get beyond the illusion of separateness. And we know that I and the other one, if they suffer, I suffer. And you can see it in the in the demonstrations. You see people stepping up with the George Floyd and realizing that's just not a black man. That's me. That's all of us. And so we get beyond that here in where I live in, in Massachusetts. You saw it during the marathon bombing where you had people actually running towards the explosion, not away from it. And you've seen it in the hurricanes and the fires where people risk their life to help other people. And, of course, first responders do that every day, whether it's hospital workers or or police officers or firemen. I mean, I have family members that are nurses, police officers, you know, friends of the firemen, the family, uh, and, you know, nurses, doctors, all of those are first responders. And then even people that are just serving in a quiet way, whether they're working in the stores or, or nursing homes or whatever that every once in a while we get beyond that illusion of separateness. Like, I only have enough to take care of me. I'm not my brother's keeper. Like in the Bible, it says, you know, you are your brother's keeper. It's like, you know, it's community. And we know this, that people who achieve greatness and perform at a high level, they have this ability to be in optimism and hope, see things as challenges, but they also have a social support system where they have a support system where they have people to help them. Like we think about what when we go to the grocery store and we get something, we don't think about the farmers. We don't think about all of the people that drove it there, people who put it on a plane or train or truck. All of that is interconnected. There's an interbeing. There's an inter-R, as, as sitting at home was talking about, that we all need each other and we show up. But there's other people behind the scenes that's making it possible. Like even on this call, there's people behind this call that we may not be seeing or all of the work that went into it before we even got here. So every, there's an interconnectivity 
that we just conveniently drop off and say, okay, it's the big I, me, and mine, or, you know, as a community, we say, oh, it's the quarterback or the pitcher, but we're not talking about all the other folks that are involved that make it possible for that one person. So we celebrate the the unity or the oneness of one person instead of realizing that, yeah, that one person we may designate as a person who is the focal point or the leader, but without the supporting staff and supporting cast, it wouldn't be possible. You make such a good and down-to-earth case for connection, lack of separation on fundamental important levels. I, I want to ask you a question. I'm a little nervous to ask it because I don't want it to either seem to be or to actually be insensitive. But I picked up on the detail that you have family members who are in part of the police force. And I, I just wonder, can you generate a sense of connection with or compassion for the officers who were involved in killing George Floyd? Yes, I, I can. And at the same time, it, it's, it's when you see other as other as a thing, not a whole person, uh, that you're able to do that. When you see the whole person like yourself, then you're not able to do that. But when you're ignorant and when you're coming from a belief system, but I, I even get more radical than that. What would possess someone to treat someone like that or to shoot people unarmed? There's got to be a belief system or paradigm that they're operating from that says that that's okay. Mm-hmm. And that, you know, it's what's the difference between, I think it was... Uh, Robert Lifton wrote a book about, he called it doubling during the um, the Germans when they were um, dealing with concentration camp inmates and they could take a baby and slam it up against a wall and kill it and then they go home and play with their little kid. Hmm. There's a certain level of being able to cut off parts of ourself or just not see the other person as just like me, this person's a human being. And so when we're able to see that, we're not able to do those atrocities when, when we get a conscious. And of course, the gentleman that wrote um, Amazing Grace, you know, he had slave ships. And at some point, he found, he found the real deal. He woke up. And so who to say that those cats that that did those atrocious acts wouldn't wake up sometime before now. And so there, there's, a, there's a human being there. Now they, their way of being is not conducive. And, and should I, am I angry at them? Am I frustrated? Am I hoping that they, you, you know, that they get taken care of? Yes, but it's not like they're separate from me because the reality is I have those same, I call it the, the, the fair wolf and the, and the love wolf. If I'm feeding a fair wolf, then I'm capable of doing the same thing. I'm capable of doing the same thing if I'm in that mindset, if I'm feeding that wolf of fear, doubt, insecurity, or seeing self or other, because it's coming out of fear that they're doing that. It's not love, not compassion. But until we can get beyond this illusion of separateness, that's possible. It's possible that we could do heinous things to each other. So... We, we all have those seeds. And so to say that they have them, we don't, uh, 
that's not entirely true, but it depends on how we direct our attention, how we train our mind and our heart. And if we're focusing on love and like the greatest commandment in the Bible is to, to love God with all your heart, mind, and soul and to love your neighbor as yourself. Now, and I would say that's the problem because if we don't love ourselves, we definitely don't love our neighbors. And so it's, it comes back to a, at the inner game of if I love myself and if I can see myself in others, then maybe I'll have more compassion and maybe there's a way where even though it's required for me to act a certain way or behave a certain way, I can say no in the space between stimulus and response. My value is to value life, human beings, you know, to be kind, generous. And I don't mean like to be it in a wimpy way, because I think when I started doing this practice and I was more reserved, people would take that as a weakness rather than realizing, no, I can exert myself, but I'm going the way of peace. I can get violent if I have to, but that's not my preferred choice. For a choice is through love, we conquer hate, not through hate. Yeah, I believe the Buddha had some things to say about that. Uh, yeah, Christ has things to say about that, and I think just about all the all the, all the wisdom literature talks about love versus you know to overcome hate. Do you have days during all of this where maybe you didn't feel that great, where you struggled with it? No, I don't, because. Man, I came from hell, man. <laughs> you know, it's like being addicted to heroin and 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 other drugs and having to get high three, four times a day, man. Everything now is like shh, coming up on 36 years clean in a week. Come on, man. I came from hell, so everything is good. So it's like it's manageable and I and I have faith, but it's not so much like I'm believing. It's like from my experience. So when you talked about the self-centered fear and all of that, that's what I call, you got to forget yourself to find yourself. What does that mean? That means if I go and serve others, I'll forget about me. This is what I learned in 12-step recovery. Help another person get out of your stuff and help somebody else, and then you'll find yourself because that other person is in you. It's so by whatever I give, I, it comes back to me. So if I'm giving grief, that's what I'm going to get back. If I'm giving love, that's what I'm going to get back. And I'm not doing it for it, but it's just natural to be, and it takes less energy to be kind than it does to be a pain in the butt or to be hostile. And then we go back and we're in that quietness. There's a part of us that feels uncomfortable with that because we know that was wrong. That wasn't right. But if we drown out that still small voice, we won't hear it. Much more of my conversation with George right after this. So you talked about death contemplation, which I think is a supremely counterintuitive resiliency practice, at least superficially or to the uninitiated. So can you describe what that practice is and why it's been so helpful to you? Yes. So because we have this this idea that when people die, we act like it's not supposed to happen. People get sick. We act like it's not supposed to happen. We get old. And we can tell that because we lose our hair. You look in the mirror, your body doesn't do what it used to do. You have to go to the bathroom more at night or whatever it is. Uh, suffering is acting like 
what's happening shouldn't be happening, but the conditions are right for everything to happen. People do not go before, and I know some people will challenge this, but you, you don't go before your time. There's things that happen. And so understanding the impermanence, that things are changing. And like Carlos Castaneda talked about in the teachings of Don Juan, he talked about having death be on your left shoulder. So it's a reminder, because like, just take the situation with Kobe. I said, oh, Kobe's going to be around. I can do that some other time. So he's not around. So you got to tell people you love them now and you got to do what you really want to do with people now so that if you're fully present and fully engaged and when you accept death, you're accepting life, the other side of the coin. So when you make peace with death, then you're fully alive because this could be your only date you have. This could be the only time you have to interact with someone. So assuming that's true, how do you want to leave that? And then I would take it another step. So I'd be watching, well, I don't have direct TV now, but I had direct TV, especially when I watched old classics like uh, Christmas Carol. And I'd go and i look at the people and when they were born and i say, dead, dead, dead. Everybody in that movie is dead. <laughs> you know? And look how young they look. Or you see somebody back then and say, okay, that was then. Now look at them now. Oh, they get old. No one's beyond aging. No one's beyond getting ill. And then you have some people like James Dean that die early, Jimi Hendrix, uh, Bruce Lee, just to name a few, Janis Joplin. I mean, I could just name tons of them. Prince Diana, there are a lot of people that, you know, they're going to die. And so that awareness was just making clear, preparing me that everything, now even a flower, it could be great today, but it's going to wilt. That's just the nature and so it's the idea of freedom or being at ease is realizing that whatever's happening now is because the conditions are right for it to be happening. And so if I have this attitude of being with what is and making peace with that, even though I don't like it and I can suffer over it and I will suffer over it, but then at some point it's like, okay, it's happened. And I'll share something with you and I... <laughs> Uh, it's like uh, when election night, I was actually teaching a, a, a sandwich retreat and we had to have some extra sessions because a lot of people that I work with were traumatized when Trump became president. And I remember feeling this anxiety and just like really awful. And then once I accepted the fact that he was the president, there's nothing I can do about it. Then, then I had peace. Then it was like, what are you going to do? So there's something about awareness. I call it the four A's, the awareness, the acceptance, and that's the challenging part. But then once we have acceptance, then the third A is action, compassionate action. And then assessment, what's the lesson to learn here? Uh, and, and what worked, what didn't work, and then what do I need to learn and practice so that I'm able to have a, a better uh can be more compassionate or have the appropriate response to that where I'm creating peace and alleviating suffering or lessening suffering or even eliminating suffering. Can you say some words about what this, I think it's called Marana Sati or that, that's the, the, the technical term for death awareness meditation. Yeah. What do you do in your mind when you're doing that practice? 
Well, you go through and you, you know, the five reflections on, you know, on not beyond old age, illness and death, or just realizing that everybody who's alive now is going to be dead. It's going to die. I'm going to die. I'm not beyond death. And just looking at it and seeing that death is a natural part of life. When you see funerals, you see people passing away. And then I, my older sister passed away in 86, and we were really close. And I could have some peace around her death, and that was before I started doing this. But it's because I could honestly say I spent as much time and I was fully present with her as much as I could be. I guess I could say the same thing about Kobe, so I could feel like I can let go. I don't have any regrets. If I have regrets, I'm going to forgive myself for it because when you know better, you do better. That's what Dr. Maya Angelou said. So there's going to be times when, yeah, I didn't get to say something. My older brother died two years ago. He passed away before I could get to the hospital. Um, You know, it was challenging. You know, he's a military vet. You know, he had a military funeral, two tours in Vietnam. He's had quite a life. But it happens. I have a lot of relatives that pass away. But I have my Uncle Joe. um, He's 100 and I think he's going to be 107 in November. And so some people live long, some people don't. All of his cousins, they died in their 60s. Here he is living 40 plus years beyond them. That takes a kind of resiliency, for sure. Yeah. Um, yes, it's just saying, accepting things as they are and, and making peace with it. doesn't mean I like it. It just means that that's the way it is. And, and if I resist it and I don't accept it, then I suffer. And I can say that with everything, because when we, we're going through a kind of grieving process, we got to die of the old, the way things used to be, and, and new things have to be reborn. So if we look at a clinging to the past, uh, that past is never coming back. So we can cling to it and say, I missed this, or we can say, okay, let's create something great now. Let's make things even better. Because when one door closes, another one opens. Something ends, it's a new beginning. So it's just thinking about it and reflecting on impermanence mostly. It's just understanding things are impermanent. Things are rising and passing away all the time. And when we see that, then the tendency is not to cling or attach to it so much. On this subject um, of resiliency, there's another... You like to come up with, um, you know, things like the four A's. And there's another one of these uh, mnemonics that you have, the 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 three C's mm-hmm. that really go right to this subject of resiliency. Can you talk a little bit about the, the three C's? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So when I got in recovery in 1984, uh, I stopped using drugs and alcohol, especially pain meds, which has got me started in the first place. I had chronic pain, migraine headaches, and and chronic back pain. I've been going to chiropractic since 1975, so what's that, 45 years? So I've had a lot of pain. And so I was was a member of HMO, Harvard Pilgrim Healthcare, I guess, originally started it. 
And so they had this program called stress management because I was going to therapy when I got clean, went into detox. And, and he, he recommended that I do this experimental program where you would, you know, spit and pee and before and after they did pre and post testing. And the person running the program was Dr. Joan Borisenko, who at that time, there was only three, what they call psychoneuroimmunologists. And she was one. And she was working with Dr. Pepper Benson out of Beth Israel. And so I learned about the three C's there. The C, threats is challenges. I can choose my response. I had control over my reaction or my response. And the commitment piece, committed to my growth and development and see it as a learning experience, commitment to myself, to my growth. And so that's what I did. And that's what I've been doing for the last 36 years or so is understanding that no matter what happens, I get to choose my response. If I can create space between stimulus and response and then align my choice with my core values, what happen to be like love and compassion, truth, you know, know the truth and then make peace with it. So just to go over the three C's, a commitment to your own growth and development, control over how you respond to stressors. Yes. And the final C is viewing every crisis as a challenge. Yeah. So we know from, I think it's Bandura that talks about um, resilience. It's the interesting thing is all you need is one little modicum of control. So no matter what happens, and and Victor Frankl talked about the space between stimulus and responses is where we have freedom and power to choose. And the thing is, no matter what happens to me, I get to choose my reaction or my response to it. So Victor Frankl talks about when you have unavoidable suffering, you can choose to respond to it in a way that with dignity and compassion and with love, that we always have a choice. And so the control part of it is if I can control a little bit of it, then having that modicum of control gives me more confidence that I have even more control. So there's a whole self-positive psychology is they call interpretive styles. So if I interpret things as a blessing or a curse, I'm both, they're both right. I can see. So people say to me, oh, you're recovered. You know, you were a drug addict. You would put that in the book. And why would you talk about that? Why would you? I said, you don't understand. If it wasn't for that, I wouldn't be here. So I interpreted not that I was uh, this low life or this awful person. It's like, okay, that was a blessing. I had to go through that. It's like you can look at this pandemic. Yeah, it's awful. A lot of people are dying and a lot's happening. And yet we can make it make it work. We can make it better, make things better. Not the same, but different and better. And it's like, okay, so that's not working. So now we don't have the illusion of some of this stuff working. And so now let's, let's get busy. So something happens to us and then we get to interpret what it means. And I say, I'm going to interpret it in a way that empowers me, inspires me, and gives me power. They call that interpretive styles. But all of these are attitudes and have to do with, you know, how much faith and how much confidence you have and to the degree that you can connect to higher power. That's why in my book, The the Five, um, the Mindful Athlete Secrets to Pure Performance, I talk about the five superpowers or what we call the five powers, you know, which are faith, diligence or effort, mindfulness, concentration and wisdom. 
to me, they're like my powerhouse. They're like my power plant. That if I mindfulness cultivate those qualities and balances them, and I have access to more power. I have access to be able to, to be more present, to be more persistent, to be more focused, to cultivate more wisdom. And that power plant, it's fueled in the furnace, it seems like, if I'm hearing you correctly, of your meditation practice where you're building these capacities. Yes. And it's interesting because some people have the limited view of meditation practice, which means when I'm sitting in silence, my view of meditation practice is something you can do from the time you wake up to the time you go to sleep. So even in it's what we call the domain of practice, that you can still always ask yourself, you know, what am I doing? How's my mind? Uh, am, I, am I here or am I focused on somewhere else? And so from the moment the moment you're practicing, when you do something, if you are using force energy or force effort, it's not going to be, you're not going to get the result you want. If you have a lax effort, you're not going to have the result. It has to be a balanced effort. It has to be, uh, and, and you got to have a little bit of enthusiasm to get beyond lethargy or low energy. So I talk about the process of right effort it has to do with an enthusiastic, steady, continuous balance application of energy. So I don't care what you're doing. You have to have right effort. effort is there. You have to have mindfulness and wisdom. And wisdom in this case could be information, intellect, or intuitive knowing. But you got to understand, well, what am I doing? What are the principles here? So I got to know gravity is in play. So even if I don't believe in gravity, if I jump up, I'm coming down. I believe in it, but I got to know if I know gravity is there, then how do I use gravity to my advantage or understanding that? So there has to be a, a understanding of who am I, especially for myself. I have a masterpiece. I'm wired for success. I'm wired for altruism. I'm wired for freedom of choice. I'm wired for compassion, love. I'm also wired for what we talked about, the fear, the doubt, insecurity, the hostility, the hate, all of that stuff. That's the that's the fair wolf. Let me just go back to the 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 sea of challenge, viewing every crisis as a challenge. Uh, I'm 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 channeling perhaps skeptical voices of listeners saying easier said than done. Yes, and but here's an interesting thing is when you get in the habit of seeing things as a challenge, it gets easier. It becomes a habit. So from my experience, it was a dope fiend. Come on now. That's a, that's a hell of a challenge. Most people don't get that right. Alcoholism, they don't get that right. But if I see it as a challenge and say, okay, this bottle of water is half empty, half full. Both are right. So if you come from half empty, you're in the survival mode and you're in coming from scarcity, coming from fear. If you see it as half full, you're coming from abundance. And so we know this because uh, the guy Lipton wrote a book called The Biology of Belief. He said that on a cellular level, a cell is either in survival mode or growth mode. You can't be in both. So what we're really talking about here is if you're in survival mode, you're right. You ain't going to get there. So you got to get out of 
survival mode and get in growth mode. And what gets you in growth mode? Seeing what you can do, seeing the light, not seeing the dark, and seeing the yes, I can. Is that a trainable habit of mind? Yes. Like every habit of mind is trained. It's a habit. That's <laughs> just what it is. But here's what we're saying. You have to have a, some kind of spiritual practice or some kind of self-introspection that allows you to observe, evaluate your habit patterns and to be able to say, okay, this one's working, this one's not, and how do I change it? How do I let it go? So I would say the practice of mindfulness has to do with transforming the mind, making the mind more your friend, making the mind more susceptible to being in the present and focusing on things that are about alleviating suffering or being here now and being uh, being loving, being present, being uh, whatever it is. I'd say love, really, just being open to what is and then whatever comes up, Relating to it in a way where you feel like you're going to express your love, your compassion, your being on an adventure, your joy for life. And so, yeah, everything. I mean, that's the thing. Attention. We all are paying attention all the time. So what we're really talking about is paying attention to what you pay attention to. And so that's what mindfulness is about. It's appropriate attention is attention that brings you in the moment and is focused on what you're doing in this moment and whether what you're doing is skillful or unskillful. So all of these qualities of mind, the insight, uh, the effort, the faith or the trust, the concentration of poise, all of those qualities are always operating. Those five spiritual powers, they support each other. And mindfulness helps to balance them. So if I have too much faith and not enough insight or verified faith, then I'm going to be polyamorous. If I have a lot of insight and not enough trust or faith, I'm going to be cynical. So we do this all day. So all day you're going to be cynical about something. So, okay. So mindfulness helps you bring more faith to trust or to have the willing suspension of disbelief and say, I don't know. Let me see what's possible. Right. So the investigation, explore it, see what's true. George says that this is what it is. Okay. Let me go see if I can have a direct experience of that. And so you have, we all do this. We try too hard and we don't try hard enough. So if we have too much effort and not enough poise or steadiness of mind, then it's going to be it's not going to be helpful. If we have too much poise or steadiness of mind, we're going to be and not enough effort. We're going to be sluggish and whatever. So we need to bring the effort up. So we need to understand that we can do that from moment to moment. We have to cultivate these possibilities. Sitting in silence is very helpful. Having a practice of compassion or love and kindness. Uh, appreciative joy, they're very helpful. But in the immediacy of experience, when we're operating, we have to adapt to, well, that's what life is, adaptation. What am I getting and what do I need to change so that I get back on track or that I'm able to perform the way I want to? There has to be that immediate feedback and you have to have a mechanism of being self-observant from this relaxed receptivity where we are observing experience in a way where we're not moving towards pleasure or away from or aversion, whether it's pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral, a nervous system is going to move towards what's pleasant, move away from what's unpleasant, and space out on what's neutral, unless it's uh, neutrality, like equanimity, where we have a purpose, we're not indifferent, we have an understanding 
uh, what's happening. So from moment to moment, those qualities of mind are operating, whether we know it or not. We have these habit patterns. We have these things that we habitually do. Some of them are helpful, but the unexamined life is not worth living. So an examined life is most definitely worth living. So we examine how am I being? How am I, what are my thoughts, my words, and my behavior? Am I expressing who I say I am? And when I'm not, how, how do I change that? But everything begins with the mind. If the mind is right, everything else is going to be right. Continuing on this on this subject of resilience, you, you gave a talk online, and I'll put a link to it in the show notes on YouTube. It's called uh, Learning from Adversity. And there are many things that you discuss in that talk we've already talked about here. But one thing, there are a few things, actually, that might be worth exploring that we haven't talked about here, at least that not that I can see. Um, the notion of dealing with adversity being a team effort. What do you mean by that? So when we're dealing with adversity, so whether we're with a team or just an individual, um, so Sean Accord talked about three uh, things that you can predict somebody's success in a, in, a, in a vocation or a job or whatever. One is what he called positive genius or being a hope and optimism. Second one is social support. And the third one is seeing stress as a challenge, not as a, a curse. And so in that social component of it is we learn and, and we have a network of relationships that help us to be who we say we need to be so we don't have to do it alone. And in the Buddhist context, they talk about the Buddha, the Dharma, and the Sangha, or the community of people. So we have relationships, we have a community, so we don't do it alone. So even though I might be acting alone, I have people who, you know, whether we're talking about Joseph, whether I'm talking about my friendship with you or other people, I'm, I'm not alone. And I'm having conversations with those folks, and some of them, I'm having conversations with people that ain't even alive. Well, I would say it's a one-sided conversation, but I'm I'm studying the Buddha. I'm studying Jesus. I'm studying uh, Victor Franco, Dr. David Hawkins. It could be Maya Angelou, her teachings. It could be a lot of people, Martin Luther King, uh, a lot of people that I'm drawing from their experiences. I'm standing on the shoulders of giants, if you will. And so I'm not being alone. It's, it's like I can, I got my iPhone. I can do Audible. I can Google as access, or I can call somebody and say, hey, this is what's going on. What do you think? And it's really more about me going inside and be still and knowing and asking my inner self or just reflecting on, you know, what is this? What do I really want? So getting clarity about who I am and how I want to express myself. And, and I'm committed to the alleviation, elimination of suffering. So it has to do with that. So, okay, I don't want to suffer. I don't want other people to suffer. So what can I do that enhances, creates more harmony, creates more interconnectedness with myself first, because there's parts of myself I can, I can dissociate from, and then connecting with other people. And so when I do it, I'm giving people the permission to do it as well. And so it's better together. So we get together and it's what we call good friends and suitable conversation. That's what we're having now. And suitable conversations about here's the teachings, how do we apply them? 
in our life or how do we investigate to see if we can have a direct experience of it so it goes from faith to conviction. The more deliberate I get about cultivating relationships on an ongoing basis, the happier I am and the better I am at overcoming whatever challenges and -hmm. challenges are inevitable, whatever challenges come my way. Yes, and people are complicated. That's what my friend John Cabot said. That's one of the most uh, remarkable things when I was working with him at the Center for Mindfulness uh, back in the 90s. And he said, you know, people are complicated. And that's profound. <laughs> that is profound because <laughs> it's true. It's really true. It includes me. I'm complicated. But complexity is a beautiful thing. can be. Yeah, and the the cooler I get with my own complexity, the cooler I get with other people's complexity. We talked about this earlier. And then then you have your team. Yes. Know that then your team is stronger. Yes. I really appreciate um, the way you're able to draw this stuff out of me. <laughs> it's not that hard. Uh, it's not that hard. I have to. I can throw out some half baked questions and just let you go. It's a, it's a pleasure. <laughs> well, um, you know, I have a lot of love for you, so it's easy for me to to be myself. It's mutual, so you know. This, there's a lot of love on this end of the conversation as well. Um, and you know, I suspect people listening to this uh, are going to want to get more from you. So, you know, just before I let you go, can we have this kind of semi-facetious segment we do at the end of every episode called The Plug Zone. Yes. And can I, like I get that. you to plug everything? I, I The book is The Mindful Athlete, and I understand you're also doing a course uh, related to The Mindful Athlete. Yes. Uh, we're doing The Mindful Athlete uh, online course. We're gonna, we, we've launched it about a year ago, but we're relaunching it tomorrow. And, um, and people will be able to sign up. But this is going to be different because – there's these videos they can go and 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 watch, but we're going to have an, uh, a six-week study group. So I'm going to be on a call once a week, every week, and we're going to have we're going to do this together. We're going to create this community kind of process where we're going to go through each one of the spiritual paths. Like we might go through mindfulness one week, then we'll have a suggested home practice, and then I don't know if it's a Thursday or whatever day. I think right now it's Thursday, eight o'clock. Eastern time, but I noticed we got people from all over the world trying to join in. So we'll have, uh, you know, like an hour session that people will be able to get on the call, ask questions, and and maybe I'll give a little teaching around that. So I'm excited about it because I'm trying something. So I want more engagement, but I want this virtual community to really be engaged in doing these practices because they're fundamental and you master the fundamentals. So For instance, so I read my book 41 times, totally, and I'm reading the chapter on mindfulness for the 42nd time. I'm halfway through. You're reading your own book over and over? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Just like like the, the module. It's a meditation. You go through it. You get more out of it. But these are basic fundamentals, so you have to master those. And so I keep learning from them. And, of course, when I wrote them, or just like when I talk, I'm not really there. It's just flowing through me. And so I have the experience. A lot of times uh, I listen to myself or I read what I wrote 
And I said, that's pretty good. Where'd that come from? (laughs) 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 So there's something about being, and when you just are being spontaneous, being in flow, and it's just coming, and you don't have time to really contemplate it because that breaks the flow. You just got to let it speak for itself. And then afterwards, I can reflect on it and contemplate, okay, that worked, that didn't work. How do I... How do I do that? So, of course, there's my website, georgemumford.com. And, uh, but the course, and there's other offerings. I also have a YouTube channel. So every Thursday, I do a post around COVID. It's called Being at Home with George. And I've been doing that since the beginning of the COVID. And then there's other things coming up. But for the most part, it's, it's getting the, the online course going because I want people to be able to have access these teachings and most of them really can't afford to pay me at the level that I'm accustomed to being paid or paid at when I'm working with elite clients, but I work with people on all levels. So it's just really about making the teachings available. And then it also helps me because the feedback I get from people engaging and interacting with us help us be able to fine tune and make those adjustments, those adaptations that's going to be more helpful. Everybody should go check out all of those resources. Links to every single one of them will be in the show notes. So it'll be accessible to everybody. George, is there anything I should have asked you but failed to ask you? No, everything is, uh, no, I think everything is, I mean, we said we needed to say. I just want to say that I hope people will, like I said, hold the hurt, be able to acknowledge the hurt, but also generate the hope and really bring this this sense of adventure or let's create something that's better than what we had before, even if that's just the relationship we have with ourselves and others so that we could be more compassionate, more kind, more loving. And at the same time, you know, alleviate suffering and, or eliminate it, but also let's just have more fun. Let's be more together, more interconnected, living more joy. Cause my motto is joy now and never. <laughs> I just, you know, I just want to, the final thing I want to say, just to tie a ribbon around what you just said, is there's a way in which, hey, let's make the best of this situation can come off as sort of an empty bromide. But you are listening to the voice, not mine, George's voice, of somebody who has done that, who has, as he said, gone to hell, the depths of addiction, never mind what he went through growing up, which we haven't even talked about, the depths of addiction and turned it around, became, as you can hear from all of his references to all the people he studied from, whether they're alive or dead, and turned it through a process of inner alchemy into like a, just a bottomless well of wisdom and has walked this walk of turning crappy circumstances into something positive over and over and over again. So we're all stuck in COVID world, and uh, many of us are on the receiving end of a lot of injustice when it comes to the the racism that is threaded through many aspects of our society. And it, it is not to take anything away from the objective horror of all of that to say what George has said, which is you can turn it into something great on the other end and you're hearing it from somebody who's done it. So thank you, George. I appreciate thank it. Thank you. Appreciate it. Big thanks again to George. As a reminder, George has that fantastic course on the 10% Happier, all about learning how to face 
high-pressure situations. We'll include a link to the show notes, along with the links to uh, George's Mindful Athlete course and ways you can access his other offerings. Before I depart here, I want to pass along my gratitude to the TPH podcast team. Samuel Johns is our senior producer. Marissa Schneiderman is our producer. Our sound designers are Matt Boynton and Anya Sheshik of Ultraviolet Audio. Maria Wortel is our production coordinator. We get a ton of guidance and wisdom from our colleagues, such as Ben Rubin, Jen Poyant, Nate Toby, Liz Levin. And of course, a salute to my guys at ABC, Ryan Kessler and Josh Cohan. We'll see you all on Friday with a bonus meditation from 7A Selassie on resilience.